It's that time. Your fix is here. College football is a year-round discussion with these two. Here's J.C. and Morgan. Mike Morgan of ESPN and J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports have you covered. Beginning right now. Welcome in. It's another installment of J.C. and Morgan, number 193. If you're scoring at home, we have reached the month of May that feels like the offseason, but it, it is not for us as we continue to talk college football all year long. He's J.C. Sherbert at 24-7 Sports. I'm Mike Morgan of ESPN and the SEC Network. And we continue our uh, fine guest parade. We've had a, a, a number of uh, broadcasters, writers, even coaches. I'm trying to think if we've had a former player just in that realm. Now, Tim has done some broadcasting. Um, but really when you say the name, Tim couch, you think of an unbelievable, uh, high school career back in, uh, Leslie County, uh, Kentucky. See, I'm learning my Kentucky geography, marrying a Kentucky girl. Uh, and then of course the, the three years in Lexington record breaking years for that, Hal mummy, Mike Leach offense, uh, sec player of the year. And of course the number one pick in the draft with the Cleveland Browns, only fitting that we would have him on as we just concluded the 2023 NFL draft. His name is Tim Couch. He joins us now. Tim, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Mike. It's good to be with you. It's it's good to have you on. Uh, I think the last time you and I saw each other in person, I was getting ready to uh, to call Kentucky's opening game back in yep. September, and you were at the same restaurant that uh, my crew uh, and, right. and I were at. And so we got a chance to uh, exchange pleasantries and keep up. And, and much like uh, uh, I do, like right now I'm in uh, Studio C. I'm actually in Kentucky where my wife is from. But Studio A is in Atlanta. Studio B, where we often do the show from, where I do it from, is, is West Palm Beach. I know you spent a lot of time down there as well. So we're kind of uh, crossing paths with one another. How, how has life been uh, post on the field for you and i know for a while there you were a regular saturday analyst doing sec games i'm sure you're still in into some stuff but how has life been overall for you these last few years that's been great mike you know just enjoying retirement and you know like you said right after i got done playing uh went into broadcasting i did uh, i did the sec stuff for fox sports south for i think six years six or seven years i was doing the sec games and a studio show in atlanta as, as well. I really enjoyed my time doing that. And my kids were really young back then. So now they're at that age where they're really busy into sports and I, I didn't want to miss their stuff. So, um, so I stopped doing the broadcasting and really the only broadcasting I've done the last couple of years is uh, I did the Browns preseason games uh, before COVID, the two years okay. before COVID hit. Um, so um, I really enjoyed doing that kind of getting back around the uh, back around the organization again and being around the players. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And now I just do um, I do a YouTube show um, called the Ultimate Cleveland Sports Show. I'm on there once a week with some guys, some former players and some uh, local Cleveland media um, uh, personalities. And we talk, you know, just Brown stuff, you know, previewing games and talking about last week's right. game, things like that. And other than that, just uh, I've got some businesses here in Lexington that I'm involved in. My brother and I own a wealth management company together and uh, several different other types of investments. So uh, just busy with my kids, play a lot of golf and, um, and just doing the business thing. That's called living the good life. That's, that's what JC and I strive for everything you just described. That's, that's living the good life. Um, 
we're going to, you know, often when we have a guest on, it's, it's kind of, I joke, it's kind of the, uh, this is your life segment. And, and we start from the, the beginning of your journey and kind of go through the end. But with you, we're, we're going to jump around a bit because like I said, we just had the NFL draft mm-hmm. and it's amazing. I mean, college football fans probably immediately when they hear the name, Tim couch, they place you with that air raid offense in, right. in Lexington. Pro football fans, and what we know is that not everybody loves both. Uh, I, I, on this podcast, we do, but a lot of people kind of choose their lane and they ignore the other, and that's fine. But pro football fans, when they hear the name Tim Couch, they probably just think of the Browns, right? And they think number one yeah. pick in the draft. That's your legacy with the NFL side of things. So as we just went through another draft, and we'll get to the Will Levis because that's an obvious question. Uh, with he became one of the stories of the draft, and he just happens to play at your alma mater. But what about for you? What memories uh, spring up this time of year every every year? Because that is such an incredible life changing yeah. uh, twenty four hours, forty eight hours, week, if you will. What what jumps to mind for you that whole process leading up to being named the number one pick in the draft? Yeah, you know, I think you hit it right on the head. It, it's just life changing. You know, you go from being a college kid living in a little apartment with some roommates and stuff to being the number one pick in the draft, and you know, and 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 living that life, and and just um, you know, I come from a small town in Eastern Kentucky of you know three hundred people. You know, I grew up with not a lot. My parents didn't have a whole lot, but you know, they were very supportive of me. And my bro- my brother was a quarterback as well. He played at Eastern Kentucky University, and you know, so they were very supportive of us in our careers. Um, but, you know, that moment really changed uh, not only my life, but my family's lives and, you know, now my kids' lives. And it just um, it just it just put me on a different course in life. And, um, you know, I'm always grateful. Uh, you know, it was a tough situation that I walked into going to an expansion team uh, in 1999. The Browns were coming back into the league. Uh, they had left in 1996 to become the Baltimore Ravens. So in 99, when they came back into the league, I was the first player picked in the new Browns franchise. Uh, it's such a tremendous honor, but a, a really tough situation for a rookie quarterback to be placed in on an expansion team and, and thrown right in as a starter right away. Um, so, so it was really tough, but, you know, like I said, forever grateful just for that opportunity that I had to, to play in the NFL, be a franchise type of quarterback and, and get a chance to start in the NFL for five years and, and live out my dream. And, uh, you know, I wish that I could have stayed a little healthier and had a longer career, uh, but I had two shoulder surgeries, broken leg, uh, multiple concussions, uh, thumb surgery, uh, broken foot, just uh, the lift goes on and on of, of the injuries that piled up on me over those um, uh, five years. And then, um, you know, once that uh, that time came to an end in Cleveland, I ended up going to Green Bay for, for a season and uh, was backing up Brett Favre and had, a, had another shoulder surgery while I was up there. Uh, so I was only there for a season and, and um, never was really the same after that second shoulder surgery. So that was the end of it for me. But I really enjoyed my time, had a great run, and uh, the, the, the NFL experience was something I'll never forget. Did you uh, things have changed since you went through that process? A lot of guys now just skip the combine. They they just yeah. want to go to pro day because they know they can kind of tilt the scale on a lot of different things. Did did you go through all the the the, the things that that guys typically have to go through? I went to the combine, but I really just went and did the uh, I did the uh, the weighing in the measurements. I did all the interviews with the teams. I didn't work out at the combine. I didn't throw. Okay. Or I didn't lift or run or do anything like that. So, um, uh, so I did that in my pro day. I had a pro day uh, in Lexington right. where a lot of the teams came. The Browns were there. The Eagles were there. The Bengals. I think the teams that had you know the top four or five picks that year were there. Uh, yeah. So I did a workout there that uh, you know was pretty pretty intense workout. You know they put me through everything. 
Um, so, right. I, so I did all that. But my agent, you know, at that point, um, when we were going to the combine, he said, basically, all you can really do is kind of hurt yourself at this point because right. you project to go number one. You're going to be out there throwing to a bunch of guys you've never seen before, an environment you've never been to. So let's just not throw there. Let's don't go hurt ourselves, and let's just wait for our pro day. We can go back to Lexington where you're comfortable. You can have your receivers from college there, and you know you're going to look sharp. Um, so we waited and, and, uh, and just uh, and, and did it in Lexington. Okay, which, which is the way every every top everybody who knows they're going in the first round that that's what they do now i wasn't sure if it was a little different back in 99 i mean if we go back to the 80s for example right. those guys were running the 40 at a combine <laughs> they were benching 225 and they're probably saying why yeah. do i have to do this but that was just <laughs> what you did but right. as as you said everybody knew and correct me if i'm wrong so you went one Achilles smith went to out of oregon uh donovan right? mcnab went to from syracuse I thought I thought McNabb went later. Okay, but was yeah, it Keely Smith in that same? Keely went three. He went three. Okay, and, yeah. and Donovan because because they wanted a running back in Philly. They want, I think they wanted Ricky Williams, right? So they booed. Yeah, yeah, they and, wanted Ricky and Williams. I, and uh, Mike Ditka uh, in New Orleans ended up trading his whole draft to get Ricky Williams. That's right. Um, yes. And then we had uh, we had Edron James in that draft. Champ Bailey, yes. Von Kurtz, uh, Torrey Holt, um, a, lot, a lot of great players that, that were in right. that draft. Yeah, right. a lot of good quarterbacks. Dante Culpepper, a lot of really good quarterbacks. Culpepper at a UCF went to Minnesota. Yeah. That's right. So I had to, I had to go back, and I'll be honest, I forgot that when you were drafted by Cleveland, that was the expansion year. Yeah. Like I, I, I just like that part of my brain uh, was just blocked out. Uh, maybe Art Modell wanted it that way, but I, I couldn't remember <laughs> that when you went there and. It really was. You're not making excuses, but I'll say it for you because I'm looking back and you're sacked like your first two full seasons when you yeah. were healthy. You're sacked over 50 times. Right. You you certainly had enough mobility. You're a former basketball player. For, you had enough mobility where you could run, but you you had no offensive line. I mean, that was a – back then, they didn't really go out of their way to make sure that the expansion teams could compete right away. You, you no. knew whoever was going to get that job as a starting quarterback – it was going to be uh, an unbelievable battle just to stay upright and to be competitive. And, of, of course, that's what you had to go through. But you knew that going in, you're not going to say no. Uh, but but clearly that's a big part of the equation of you in Cleveland, is it not? It, it definitely is. You know, like I said, it was, it was such a tough situation to be placed in. And really the plan was for me to sit year one. You know, Ty Detmer uh, was there. He'd right. been in the league for – at 10 or 12 years at that point and been around, the, been around on several teams. So Ty was going to start that season and I was just going to, uh, you know, kind of be the backup and learn because, you know, they knew as an organization that we weren't going to be very good in that, in that first year and they didn't want to throw me to the wolves. But literally the first game of the year, we play our rival, the Pittsburgh Steelers at home and they're blowing us out. It's 40 some to nothing. Ty starts the game. Coach looked at me in about midway through the uh, fourth or third quarter and goes, you're in next. And I'm like, oh, great. It's 40 to nothing. You're going to put me in. So so I go in that game, and then we go on the road uh, in week two against the Titans and, you know, Steve McNair and Eddie George and that team. Um, and I'm starting in week two. So the plan for me to sit year one was scrapped about two and a half quarters, three quarters in, into that first year. Um, and obviously, you know, as a player, I wanted to be out there and, you know, wanted to fight with my guys and be out and, 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 and compete. But it was a bad situation. You know, we um, we had a first year head coach and Chris Palmer. My um, my best receiver was a rookie, uh, Kevin Johnson from Syracuse. Um, so we, it was just really a bunch of young guys and then a bunch of kind of 
you know, guys pieced together, some older guys that have been in the league for a while, uh, you know, just trying to make it uh, that first year. And it was uh, it was a rough year. Like you said, I, I think I got stacked um, like 56 times in, in 15 nice. start, you know, that, that yeah, first that, year. So it, it, it only was pretty to be rough. surpassed by da- only to be surpassed by David Carr, which, again, yeah. was another expansion situation. Exactly. When, another expansion situation. he went situation. to the Texans. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say you were a little more mobile than, than David Carr was, uh, to be fair to the whole situation. But the other thing I want to ask you about, so, so again, us uh, college football fans, SEC fans, it was one of my favorite offenses to watch yeah. was the Air Raid, and it was Hal Mummy and the late Mike Leach, who I want to ask you about eventually. But I, but I think to that time frame, how radically different that offense was to what 99% of what teams are running in college football. Today, that's not as radical. Today, uh, we see a lot more of that or versions of that. And it's not uncommon for an NFL team to say, you know what, I I know that offense is different, but we're going to run some of the same plays. And we have evidence that quarterbacks from that system can acclimate to the NFL. When you went out, that was not necessarily the case. I'm sure, even though you went number one, there were a lot of people saying, yeah, but he runs in this kind of unique offense that he's never going to see in the NFL, and how much right. of those numbers are a byproduct of the offense, et cetera, et cetera. Did you have to battle that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I think a lot of the talk was, you know, because we were in the shotgun most of the time in that offense. They were, you know, can't even play from under center because, you know, the NFL at that time, it was, uh, you know, everybody was under center. You were kind of rarely in the shotgun, um, you know, unless it was an obvious passing down. So it was really, you know, under center, play action, you know, throwing those deep comebacks and out routes and breaking in routes and things that really weren't part of that air raid offense. You know, it was more we were in the shotgun, getting rid of the football quick. It was really short to intermediate um, passing game, ball control, passing attack. You know, we would take our shot when it was there, but it was more of, you know, some of the some of the passing plays that we called in the air raid was we considered it an extension of the run game. You know, like if we would throw a screen pass out there, we considered that just a little sweep, you know, a little toss sweep. But instead of tossing it to the running back, we could throw it out there to a guy like Craig Yeast, who was one of the, you know, the best players in the SEC at that time. And, you know, he's got blockers in front of him. And it just turns into almost like a punt return for him. You know, he's got blockers in front and he, he just kind of goes and makes plays. So uh, you know, those type of plays weren't going to be really run in the um, in an NFL system. So there was that kind of talk, you know, is it, how's his footwork going to be from under center, um, you know, being in a huddle, you know, calling plays because we did a lot of stuff at the line of scrimmage with just hand signals and almost kind of like uh, almost like a hurry up offense, um, you know, uh, all, all game long. So there, there were there were those question marks for sure. Uh, but, you know, now, like you like you mentioned, there's been so many proven guys from that system. You know, you're talking about Patrick Mahomes. Um, uh, Jared Goff, you know, they, they've all been uh, Baker Mayfield. They, they were all air raid quarterbacks that had a lot of success, you know, now in the NFL. So, but, but back then there, there were certainly a lot of question marks about that offense and, and will it translate to the next level? I don't want to overshadow. Oops. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Jason. Mike. No, oh, ahead. no, no. I, I, I was, was going to bring it back to that, that era uh, because they, those Kentucky teams, he was on really, they, they that was a, you know, Steve Spurrier gets to Florida and he kind of, you know, revolutionized things. That was sort of a next step, what Coach Mommy and Coach Leach did there in that league. Uh, we were talking earlier, you know, Tim was originally recruited uh, or, or committed to Tennessee. Uh, and I, I'm assuming David Cutcliffe was the OC quarterbacks coach there. And Cub was, was pretty yeah. Cub yeah. was pretty good, too. He was um, great. Kind of walk us through that, what made you decide to stay at home, because people may not realize this either. 
you didn't sign up for the air raid at Kentucky. You signed it up for Bill Curry's offense. That's right. <laughs> that, very that's different. a lot different, right? You know, so uh, I, 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 I think that's it's more of a Billy Jack Haskins offense. Billy exactly. Jack, exactly. Antonio, yeah. Antonio yeah. O'Farrell. I remember. Right. Yeah. I, I remember he came to South Carolina one Thursday night, uh, and uh, he was the backup. And uh, they ran the option on the Gamecocks all night long and beat them or whatever. But uh, yeah, Mo that was the definitely. Back. Mo, yeah, Mo was oh gosh! Yeah. Oh, Mo that ran was for like two ninety nine. Yeah, oh, yeah. That, that was definitely a ground based attack. So, <laughs> uh, kind of walk us through that because I, I think that's fascinating. And, and maybe people, because of what happened once once Leech and Mummy got there, and I keep right. saying Le- Leech and Mummy because people know Leech. How Mummy kind of designed that offense too. I mean, it, it, he deserves. He's kind of the grandfather of the air raid, or the yeah, he created it. You know, he, yeah. he definitely created it, and Leach took it to another level. But yeah. you know, when I when I was coming out, um, you know, I was committed to Tennessee. Uh, Peyton Manning was there; he was a couple years ahead of me. And um, you know, Peyton and I became good friends at that point, uh, just you know, through me being there on recruiting visits and you know those kind of things, and being at a lot of their games. Um, and we got to talk, and, and Peyton basically told me that he probably thought he was going to stay for all four years which means I'm going to be sitting on the bench for a couple of years and, you know, behind him, which isn't a bad thing, you know, learning from Peyton's always a great thing, but um, you know, I kind of wanted to go and play right away because uh, I felt like I was ready to go. And, but Kentucky, like you said, Bill Curry was the head coach and they were running the option at the time. And I was certainly not an option quarterback. I could run a little bit, but I was, I was, I was definitely a drop back passer uh, pocket guy. But, um, you know, we get there and they, they say, well, we're going to change the entire offense for you. Uh, if you come to Kentucky, we're, we're not going to put you in the option and do all this. I remember the first day of training camp, I get there and we go out on the practice field. And the very first play we're working on is our option footwork coming down the line. Yeah. Right, we got, I got off the field and I called my dad. I said, this is going to be a long damn year. I'm like, we're <laughs> it, not going to work out for me. So um, they ended up firing uh, Coach Curry halfway through that season. And I was going to transfer. I was going back down to Tennessee. I, I had already called um, Coach Fulmer and said, I'm going to transfer. And, you know, I, back then, you know, you had to sit out a year. And so I was going to just sit out a year, the back, you know, be paced, you know, kind of understudying and take over when he left. Um, and, and then C.M. Newton, the athletic director at Kentucky at the time, he comes to me and says, I, I know you want to transfer and things aren't working out for you. But if you'll just go through this process with me, I'm going to go find a coach just for you that's going to suit you perfectly. So I'm like, all right, I'll go through the process with you. And he comes back and he goes, I got your guy. And I go, who is it? He goes, his name's Hal Mummy from Valdosta State. And I'm like, who the hell's Hal Mummy? And then, where's <laughs> Valdosta State? Like, I'd never heard of either one of them. So, right. um, but anyway, the first the first time I meet Hal, um, I walk into his office and he looks at me and he goes, we're never running the option. You're going to throw the ball 50 times a game and you're going to lead the country in passes. And I go, all right, that's all I needed to hear. So I'm like, I'm, I think I'm going to stay for one more year. So uh, came out my sophomore year and had a big year. I think I threw uh, 37 or 38 touchdowns and um, and really had a big season. And um, Hal and Mike were they were just so far ahead of their time as far as the passing game goes. You know, like you said, Florida and Steve Spurrier were you know doing the fun and gun, and they were putting up some big numbers, but they were really pretty balanced. You know, they had Fred Taylor and Eric Rett and some of those guys in the backfield as well. So they, they weren't doing kind of, we, we did, they were throwing the ball a lot, but we took it to another level where we almost abandoned the run game completely. And we were just going out there and slinging it 50, 60 times a game. And it was, it was so much fun to play in. And, um, you know, it's, it's crazy to see, you know, back then, obviously I didn't know what we were creating in an air raid offense. And, you know, now 
20 years removed from it or so that you see it it's spread all over college football and almost every team runs, you know, if not the straight up airways, some type of version of it. And, you know, it's made its way into the NFL. Cliff Kingsbury, who was a Mike Leach guy, uh, was the head coach, uh, you know, up until last year with the Arizona Cardinals. And, you know, so they're running the air raid. A lot of air raid quarterbacks are in the NFL. So it's amazing to see how, how that offense changed the passing game in, in, in college football over the last 20 some years. Yeah. I mean, to go back to your point on the, uh, the Spurrier teams, their run pass distribution was nearly 50, 50. I mean, it might've been like 51, 49, 52, 48 tops. That clearly was not what you guys did. That was the biggest uh, differentiator, but uh, as JC properly brought up, it really was Hal Mummy's offense. And I do remember because I was just starting my broadcasting career. I was in Columbus, Georgia, hosting a radio show and we talked a ton of college football and a ton of SEC football. And I, I knew about you from a distance in recruiting. Back then, I also would cover recruiting pretty heavily. And I was like, why are we waiting to see this couch kid play? No no disrespect to the uh, the guys ahead of you. And Bill Curry he had a brilliant career in college and in pro. And, I mean, you could do a whole biography on Bill Curry. But I would rip Bill Curry pretty much once a week on my show and say, what are you doing? You have like the top passing quarterback prospect in the country and you're running yeah. the option. And, you know, obviously it, it didn't last. And like you, I had no idea who Hal Mummy was. I didn't mm-hmm. know Valdosta State, even though I was working in Georgia at the time, didn't know they had a football program. Right. Uh, yeah. And quickly realized, oh, goodness, okay. This is this is unique. This guy knows what he's doing. So Mummy deserves a ton of credit, but I do think a lot of our audience would be interested in in you getting to know a young and at that p- point in his career, nobody really knew who Mike Leach was. What no. kind of guy was Mike Leach? We know the finished product right. his last few <laughs> years and kind of quirky yeah. and he would say anything and he's infatuated with pirates and yeah. what, what did what did you pick up in your time with Coach Leach? You know, my first impression of Mike was I thought he was one of the weirdest guys I'd ever met, you know, because, <laughs> you know, you, you'd been in these, uh, you'd call it around college, college coaches and stuff, and they were all so cut and dry, and X's and O's and this, that, and the other. Uh, the first time I met Mike in his office and, you know, wanted to talk about the system, whether it was, he wanted to talk about everything but football. He wanted to talk about uh, wars and history and pirates and and everything possible. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? You know, he's, he's like, I'm not sure about it. Um, but then after I got to know him, I'm like, oh, no, this guy's actually brilliant. You know, he's um, he is quirky in the way he goes about it. But when it comes down to designing stuff and, you know, calling plays at the right time and setting plays up, um, he was absolutely he was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, how at that time, my first couple of years, my sophomore, junior, how was calling pretty much all the plays. And then Mike was started coming in more after I left of, of calling plays. And then um, uh, he got the job with uh, with Oklahoma and Bob Stoops as the offensive coordinator there. And that's when he really took off as, as a play caller. And they won a national championship. And, and then Mike gets the job at Texas Tech. And obviously he just continues to grow and grow and grow. Uh, but, yeah, he was uh, he was in the early stages of his career back then. It was really more how calling all the plays at that point. And Mike was just, you know, kind of helping, you know, on the sidelines and seeing things and telling how what what coverages we're getting and what may work and this, that and the other. But uh, they, they really worked together as a team, you know, as far as game planning goes and those kind of things. But Mike, um, he really uh, once, once he left Kentucky, he really took off and, and came into his own as a, as a head coach. 
while we're in that time frame, take us through your memories of the SEC then. And as you mentioned, then you got to broadcast it years later. And I'm sure you keep up with the game today and you'll watch whether it's your Kentucky Wildcats or just a great game between Alabama and Georgia in the SEC title game. Like the SEC was always good. But the difference to me is top to bottom, it wasn't what it is now. Like you had some teams you felt pretty good about playing every week. Uh, and some would say Kentucky was one of those before you got there and before, right. you know, everything kind of uh, moved forward with the offense. But now it's just you took a good product and you made it that much more elite. The SEC did over time. But, but what do you see when you watch that transformation? Yeah, really the same thing. You know, it was it was super talented back then, but it was really top heavy, you know, with Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, you know, all those uh, LSU, those schools were really that were good year in and year out. And then it was just kind of everybody else. You know, I mean, it, there were some good teams. But like you said, there was there were some teams that you would see on your schedule every week. You know, even us at Kentucky, uh, you know, we were like, well, we'll beat these guys. We'll beat these guys. You know, we'll beat Vanderbilt. You know, we'll beat whoever, Mississippi State or or whatever. You know, we'll, we'll beat these guys. And um, and now it's really top to bottom. This league has really improved over time. And there's really no weeks off anymore. This is just such a strong league. Um, you know, you just look at the NFL draft every year and it's by far – the SEC has the most guys drafted every year for the last 15, 20 years, I guess it is probably. So, um, you know, the talent is there top to bottom. And, um, you know, it's, just, it's really impressive to, to see where this league has, has grown to. And it's only getting stronger. You know, we have Texas and Oklahoma coming into the league now. Um, I guess I guess that, that next year they come in. Right? Next year? Yeah. yeah so, 2024, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even a, a, the best conference, in my opinion, in the, in, in the country gets even stronger with those two teams coming in. So it's phenomenal. You know, I think um, other than playing in the NFL, it's uh, it's the best competition you can that you can uh, go out on the field and compete in week in and week out. You're going against a bunch of guys that are that are going to play again at the next level, and uh, you're going uh, going up against a bunch of great coaches. You know, this this league has unbelievable coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they can recruit, they can they can scheme, they can design and it's uh it's just uh it's just a fun conference the the fans the, the crowds you know the, the the support that they give these these football teams showing up to the games week in and week out filling stadiums up and uh it's just it's just an unbelievable environment to play football in and i know everyone who's played in the sec and is playing in the sec now just really enjoys being a part of it and getting to compete in that in that conference week in and week out talking with tim couch um I do want to circle back to the draft for a minute and, and the Will Levis situation. That became the story. Yeah. I I have a mixed bag of kind of feelings about the whole thing. I, I broadcasted a number of Will's games, particularly the year before last, when he looked like a first-round draft pick. I know that the offensive line was abysmal this past yeah. year. Knew that going in. Um, his top playmakers – were uh, were a running back that was often suspended and then true freshman wide receivers. That being said, I don't know if anybody could have predicted the precipitous fall from top five, top 10 pick to early second round. What did, when you look at his skill set and play, what do you see? And can you even, you didn't have to go through this, but you know, people that have, can you even describe What's going through that young man? He, he's sitting there and he's he's on a couch with his family and his girlfriend right. on national TV. And he's got to sit there and, and put a positive look on his face for four or five hours. Can you even uh, kind of 
feel what he's feeling going through all that. Yeah, you know, I, I just felt horrible for Will. You know, I've gotten a chance to know him really well over the last couple of years uh, since he's been in Lexington. And uh, we've gotten to be friends and we talk all the time and talk to him right before the draft, you know, the night before the draft a little bit and uh, just kind of, you know, tell him to, you know, embrace that moment and kind of soak it all in. It's like nothing you've ever experienced. Obviously, I didn't know it was going to go like that for him. Now it's definitely something like you'll never experience. But, um, you know, I think as far as skill sets go, I think Will has every – everything that you need to be successful at the next level. He's, he's got a huge arm. He's competitive. He's tough. He's a great leader. He's fiery, brings a lot of energy uh, to the team. Um, areas he can improve in. Certainly he can improve on a little bit of pocket presence, um, accuracy at times, decision-making at times. Um, but, you know, that's every quarterback. You know, Will's pretty raw still. He's only started two years of college. Uh, when he was at Penn State, he played a little bit, didn't really start there, and was really more of a, a running quarterback at Penn State. Uh, he gets to Kentucky, and he's played in two different uh, pro-style offenses. So he's, he's ready to go. He'll, he'll pick up an offense really quickly uh, at the next level. And, you know, he knows how to make those decisions within those pro-style offenses. There's a lot of things that quarterbacks have to do at the line of scrimmage, uh, at the line of scrimmage and that, those offenses just to get in the right play, you know, run checks, uh, sliding protections in the passing game, um, uh, picking up blitzes, hot routes, all, all those kind of things that you do in, in NFL systems, Will will be prepared for. Um, you know, as far as his experience goes that night, I, I just, as a friend, I just felt really bad for him. You know, I think anyone, whether you know Will or not, you don't want to see any kid go through that. You know, that's just a, that's a tough thing when you're expected to be a top five, top ten pick at worst, and you just keep seeing these quarterbacks go ahead of you and these other players. And, you know, once he got past – Indianapolis, I thought, well, you know, you look at that, who was up next, you know, there's really no one that needs a quarterback. So you kind of kind of saw the fall coming after after uh, Richardson went to the Indianapolis Colts. And so um, you but you hoped that somebody would kind of trade back up and get it in that first round. And uh, but but it didn't work out that way. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think it worked out best for Will, to be honest with you, because I think, you know, one, he doesn't have to deal with what I dealt with coming into the league as a number one pick, where if you or John Elway or Troy Aikman, then you're labeled a bust, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you don't, he doesn't have to deal with that bust uh, label on his chest. Now there's way less pressure on Will as a second round pick. Not that that's a bad draft pick at all, still a very high draft pick. And they obviously have a lot of belief in you and hope that you're going to be their future at the quarterback position, but you're not that top five pick anymore. And uh, so, the, so there's way less pressure on Will, in my opinion. And I think he's in a really good spot. I think his personality and Vrabel's personality, the head coach there in Tennessee, really mesh together. Uh, they're both hard-nosed, tough, competitive guys. Uh, played against Mike Vrabel in the NFL. I know what kind of player he was. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's been an excellent football coach over the last few years with Tennessee. So I'm happy for Will uh, where he ultimately ended up. I hate that he had to go through that experience to get there. But I think uh, long term for Will's career, I think it's going to work out just fine. If you were to put stock, take Levis out of the equation, put stock in one of the guys that did go, uh, let's say three years from now we're having this conversation, who do you think is going to shine? The most, um, you know, I, I really like Bryce Young a, a lot. You know, I think you know, uh, number one pick. Obviously, um, his his decision making I think is really really good. I think he sees the game at a really high level. His vision is tremendous. He's got great accuracy, anticipation, and he can create uh, really well with his legs. So, you know, in, in today's NFL at the quarterback position, you have to you don't have to be a great runner, but you have to be able to, you know, kind of create a little bit with your legs and and keep things alive, keep plays alive, extend plays, make uh, throws down the field. 
I think Bryce can really do that. I think he's a great distributor of the football uh, as far as, you know, getting it out quick. I think he sees the field really well. He understands coverages and uh, where, where he wants to go with the ball, and he doesn't waste any time, doesn't hesitate. And that's really, you know, what playing in the NFL is. It's, it's timing, anticipation, and really seeing things and processing information quickly. And, um, you know, if you can't process quickly what you're seeing, and in the NFL they're really good at disguising things and trying to trick you, showing you one coverage uh, pre-snap, giving you another one post-snap. And if you can't, you know, uh, process that information quickly and know where you're going with the football. You're going to get sacked a lot. You're going to be back there holding the ball uh, and those kind of things. So I, I think Bryce will really excel in those areas, which is which is why I think he's going to be a great player. People talk so much about his size. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, here you were 6'4", what, 225, 230. Yeah. Troy Aikman was a, was a big guy who looked, I mean, looked the part. And Troy had concussions most of his career, had injuries a lot, a big part of his career. Some of the biggest quarterbacks in the NFL are, are the ones that get hurt the most. So I, I don't. To me, it comes down to does do you take a lot of shots? And Bryce right. Young doesn't like Cam Newton wanted he wanted to run and deliver the blow against the linebacker tackling out of bounds. Like he would choose contact. Yeah. over stepping out of bounds because that was just his mentality. And inevitably, his bo- bro- body broke down. I believe it was a big part of why he's not playing right. anymore. Bryce doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to take the big shot. Yeah. And so I don't, I'm don't. i not as concerned about his size as everybody else seems to be. Maybe I'm crazy on that. Yeah, I'm not either, really. You know, and, you know, back in, like you said, back when I was playing, they wanted that big 6'4", 230-pound pocket guy like, you know, myself or Troy Aikman or Drew Bledsoe. Um, you know, those big guys standing in the pocket just throwing the football. Tom Brady was the same when he came in. Um, you know, that Peyton Manning, those type of guys. And now, you know, everyone wants more of a little uh, – a guy that's a little more mobile who can create. You know, we're talking about, you know, like the Patrick Mahomes type of guy. Um, you know, all, all these guys that are in the league right now that are really good at moving around. Even Joe Burrow, you know, Joe can create. You know, he can extend plays. Uh, he's really good at that. Um, so I, I think Bryce is, is, will, will fit right in as far as that goes. He's what they're looking for. And his size doesn't really bother me at all. You know, we've seen guys his size have a lot of success in the NFL now. And back back in the day, we really hadn't seen any. I guess probably Doug Flutie was the only guy uh, playing back then that kind of would, you know, be that size and that style of running around, creating and things like that. But now we see a bunch of those guys and and they're proven that they, they can play at that level. And the offenses have changed a little bit to fit uh, their style of play. And and uh, so I really don't see any issues for Bryce as he, as he enters the league. Tim, you mentioned, you know, during your first year at Kentucky, it was obviously frustrating. You're thinking about possibly transferring. Now, quarterbacks who don't, who know they're not going to start, or they're not happy with any facet of the offense or the coaching staff or anything. They're, they're in the portal. They're ready to go. They're ready to jump. You have that. You have NIL. You have coaches poaching players off other teams. I mean, it is a thousand times different in so many ways from when you played, and that wasn't that long ago. So when you look at today's landscape, what do you feel about the current climate of college football? Well, I, there are certain things that I like and certain things I don't. And that would be one that I don't as far as guys, every time they get beat out, no matter really what position it is, they're looking for the doors. You know, they're, they're trying to go somewhere else. And, you know, I, I don't like that necessarily. You know, I knew for me, the reason I wanted to transfer was because it just, it wasn't a good fit. You know, we were running the option and, you know, I was yeah. on, on a really bad team and I was like, you know, this is where I need to be. But 
as far as competition, now guys want to transfer because there's someone that beat them out or this, that, and the other. Like used to, you know, that was, uh, you know, the good thing. It made you work harder. It made you, it made you want to be uh, more successful, and it, it just raised your level of play competing with somebody like that. And you waited your turn. You know, if Peyton, if you went somewhere and Peyton Manning was there or whoever it was. You waited your turn behind them, and when they were done, you took your one or two years and and you played it out. And now guys are just, um, you know, you see a guy get drafted now, and you look at his resume, and he's played for three different teams. It, it, it's um, it's a crazy thing uh, to to see where college is, and you know, I don't think it was really meant to be this way, as far as you know what we what we're seeing in the NIL and uh, the type of money these guys are getting now, and it's just. Um, it's really crazy. You know, I think, you know, guys are just looking for the best deal they can get out of high school. And that's, uh, and why not? That's, that's the way it's, uh, that's the way the way it's set up and they have to take advantage of that. But I really just, uh, I kind of like more of the traditional things about college football. Um, you know, I think the NIL needs to, I think they need to get that under control as, because it's getting out of hand. You know, we're seeing guys get millions of dollars out of high school, unproven, unproven guys that, uh, you know, may, may get to college and may be great, maybe not. You know, you're taking a big risk on a guy giving him millions of dollars as a senior in high school. You have no idea how he's going to develop at the next level. So um, I don't like that part of it. But, um, you know, that's that's where we're at in college football. And, you know, I'm sure the coaches, uh, I, I know it's very difficult on them right now because not only are they having to go out and recruit and, um, and get in the portal and try to pull guys from that, they're having to re-recruit their own guys every year and trying to keep them there. You know, because like you said, other teams are coming in and trying to pull these guys from your program. So it's really like everybody on your team is uh, it's like NFL free agency every year. You know, you're telling, you're, you're trying to get guys to say, uh, to stay and, and giving them deals and giving them money off the field and things like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. And I know, I know it's stressful for these college football coaches right now. Yeah. They're getting deals like a pro would, but they're able to just bounce whenever they want. Unlike a pro that signs a contract and has that binding tied uh, to their deal. Uh, wrapping things up with with Tim Couch again, former Heisman Trophy finalist, uh, SEC Player of the Year, had all kinds of SEC records. I think Joe Burrow broke a few of those uh, a couple he of years. Did. They ago. lasted. They lasted for a good twenty years until Joe came around. Yeah. <laughs> if hey, if you're going to get beaten out on the record books, you might as well get beaten out by a guy like Joe Burrow, who certainly yeah. looks like he's on his way to having an incredible uh, pro career. We, uh, we, I'm sure we've got plenty of Kentucky fans that that tune into us, like uh, so many other schools around the SEC and beyond. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you at least one question about expectations for 2023. 2022, in some ways, was a letdown. Coach Stoops has really set the bar higher, uh, which is the good news. The bad news is that with that comes expectations that hey, if you're not winning nine, ten games in Lexington anymore that's considered a disappointment. So where, where do you think things are headed for 2023, obviously post Will Levis? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, last year the expectations were so high with Will coming back and, you know, being, you know, in the offseason, people were talking about him being a Heisman Trophy uh, candidate, a potential, you know, top five, ten pick. Um, so when you got a guy like that, the expectations are obviously going to be high. We had a lot of really good leadership and depth on the defensive side of the ball, and our defense was really good last year, but we just struggled a lot on offense, and you know, which was really disappointing. Um, you know, but now coming into this year, all those guys that were struggling on the offensive line, those young guys we have playing, we had two really good freshman wide receivers. 
uh, that started for us last year. We're just kind of coming on. They're going to be more experienced coming into uh, coming into this season. And and really, we got a transfer quarterback in uh, in Devin Leary uh, to replace Will. So that that was really the big concern when you lose a guy like Will. Where do you go at that position? Because obviously that's the key position that's going to you know kind of make or break your year. So they've got a guy who's experienced, who's proven at the college level at that position. So that, that gives me a lot of confidence, and I really really believe the offensive line is going to be much improved. We've got some transfers in uh, to go along with the guys who played so much last year and got all that good experience. Um, defensively, they'll be good again. You know, Mark's teams are always going to be coached well on, on that side of the ball. That's his uh, that's his passion on deep is is coaching the defense. Um, they're, they're going to have some playmakers. They'll be really good uh, on the defensive line. They're going to be big and have a lot of depth at, at, the, at those positions across the D-line. We lost some good players at linebackers, some good players in the secondary. So uh, there's, there's certainly some question marks, but I'm, I'm excited for this season. I think we've got a, we, we've got a good mix of veteran and, and young talent. And, um, you know, we've got Liam Cohen back as our offensive coordinator, who was here a couple of years ago when we won 10 games and won the Citrus Bowl over over Penn State. So um, we're excited to have Liam back. And uh, that system seemed to be a really good fit for us here at Kentucky. And, um, you know, I'm excited for big things this season. Yeah, I think to get Liam Cohen back is it's just a huge, huge yeah. get. Uh, they loved him two years ago and everything he was able to do. Uh, as we we finish up, Tim, I got to mention this. I'm. I have to laugh at myself. I was ready to start this interview off with a congratulations because I, <laughs> I went back and I saw, hey, uh, Tim Couch is, is on the list again. Uh, for, well, I didn't see the word again. Tim Couch is a finalist for the College Football Hall of Fame. Right. I'm in Atlanta. I'm not far from that building. I expected to see your whatever. It's not a bust. I don't know what they put in there. Uh, every every player, I think, is a little bit different. But I figured you would by now be in there. How does a guy – who put up the numbers you did, who produced the way you did, who was a Heisman finalist in the SEC Player of the Year. You've been on this list more times than I knew about and have not gotten the vote. What What am I missing? What have they told you? I don't know. I, haven't, I really haven't heard anything. You know, I think um, – I guess I've been, this is my ninth – I believe it's my ninth, eighth or ninth year in a row on the finals list. And um, I remember back when I first got the call saying I'd made the finals list, I'm like, oh, great. You know, if I don't get in this year, hopefully I'll get in next year. And I was thinking it may be a two- or three-year process. But, you know, here we are eight or nine years later and uh, still haven't gotten a call yet. But I, I don't know what the uh, – I don't know. I know it's a very, very tough process to get in. Obviously, you're going up against the, the best players that's ever played the game at the college level. Um, but, you know, hopefully hopefully it's soon. You know, I think I do have the, the numbers to get in. And, you know, just really the I think the impact that I had, you know, being in that air raid offense with Hal and Mike, the impact I had on the passing game on college football, I think, you know, is, um, it, you know, goes into uh, consideration as well. So so hopefully it's uh, it's soon. It would be such a tremendous honor to be inducted into the College Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, I'm big, excited about I'll get that call one day. Yeah. I, it, it, to me, this has to be the, like the biggest no-brainer for the College Football Hall of Fame committee. I just can't <laughs> believe. I must be missing uh, something. We'll get Susan Lax over there at Sports Information. Yeah, for sure. Get Susan together a little, a little campaign. Tim, I can't thank you enough for the time. Loved watching you play. Uh, enjoyed some of your broadcasting work. And uh, just following you on social media, I know you're loving life after retirement. You're living the good life, which uh, we all hope to do. Uh, in one way or another. So uh, again, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we'll touch base down the road. I appreciate you having me on, Mike. I enjoyed it, man. You got it. Thank you. Thanks, JC. Thanks, bud. Thanks again to uh, Tim Couch joining us again from 
Eastern Kentucky. If you know anything about Eastern Kentucky, it's it's cold country and they don't have a whole lot of money. It's it's a uh, it's near the Appalachian Mountains, and you you grew up you grew up in very humble uh, beginnings, which is what Tim Couch did. And I don't know if um there, there, we have people from all ages, JC, that tune into this podcast, but you know if you're under the age of I don't know. 35 maybe you you didn't get a chance to see Tim play in the late 90s he threw for 8400 yards in three years and 74 touchdowns at Kentucky I mean pretty legit it's not like he was working behind um first round offensive linemen either so uh that 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 offense his ability to run it and how mummy who we talked about with Tim and of course Mike Leach who became a household name eventually and I'm so glad that people in the SEC got to see that offense. Because you remember now, there are a lot of people who are on record saying, oh, that, that offense is great, but it'll never work in the SEC. It did work. I mean, they yeah. threw for a lot of yards. They put up a lot of points. They made uh, Will Rogers look like an all-star. And Will's still got another year. Heck, he might rewrite the record books by the time he's done. Although Arnett's offense is going to be much different. But uh, it was just a fun time. It's a fun era in uh well, in sec football here's the thing too mike it's a, for a long time after mummy left kentucky it, it, they, they didn't really try it a lot uh mm-hmm. the, the air raid you, you had uh you know a lot of uh rededication to the ground game um a lot of you know like the, the pro style attack that mark rick brought to georgia you know then when spurrier left florida you know, they had some spread elements, then Urban Meyer, and then then whatever. Um, you know, you sort of look around, you know, Cutcliffe kept doing Cutcliffe things at Ole Miss when he was there, and mm-hmm. that was kind of a passing attack. But, uh, you know, LSU, uh, under Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban, Les Miles, very ground-oriented. Um, you know, right until about the middle part of this decade, you know, you, you sort of – the best offenses were those uh, I, I've always been convinced were the ones Dan Mullen ran uh, scheme wise at Florida under urban and then at Mississippi mm-hmm. state. Well, then they started changing and uh, you, you did, they did try it once at Auburn <laughs> uh, Tuberville's last year, second to the last year, last year, probably he brought in Tony Franklin and it was an abject disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, and I think, I think that scared some people off or whatever, uh, well, then, you know, Lane Kiffin brought some elements of that back in. Um, he really evolved uh, when he was at Florida Atlantic, but at, but at Bama, he had some elements of that that, that air raid stuff. Um, you know, you have it at Arkansas now. You have it, like I said, at Ole Miss. You definitely have it at Tennessee. Uh, that, that's uh, Tennessee's system at its core uh is an air raid now they're all from like the bryles tree which is part of the leech tree but it's kind of a different branch if you will um but uh, i think leech coming back to the league uh proved that yeah that offense can work um even though you know mississippi state also was very good on defense uh mm-hmm. while, while leech was there uh the offense uh you know they didn't look uh, overmatched uh, when they had a quarterback that worked. You know, when that, at the beginning of 2020, they go and upset LSU. Uh, everybody thinks they're, you know, that's that. And then, uh-oh, you know, it, it went south for a while, but that's because they didn't have Will Rogers at quarterback. You know, right. Once Will came in, man, they almost upset Georgia that year. Uh, you know, I, I think Leach ended up uh, 
posting a one and two record in the egg bowl, but it was, they were all close. So yeah, I I think it works. And and just about every team now in the league does have elements uh, of what, uh, just like with, with Spurrier when he did it, not just about every team does some of the stuff he did. Uh, Every team kind of does some of the stuff that uh, Hal Mummy and Mike Leach did back in the late nineties. And uh, boy, they were fun to watch. They, uh, Uh, I remember them going to the swamp. They had Georgia, uh, Florida couldn't stop them all day. Florida outscored them because they didn't weren't all right. good on defense. But uh, you know it was good. And, and, and the thing I remember most about Couch probably is this: uh, the Final Four. I think it was the year Mike that Tubby won it all. Uh, the first year when he took over for Patino, mm-hmm. I believe it was in Minneapolis at the Metrodome. There was a sign that said. Tim Couch, 9-1, what was it, 90-96, something like 97, something like that. Uh, maybe it was before that. Maybe it was the Patino teams because Patino left in after 96-97. Uh, and, and to have that sign about Kentucky football at a Kentucky Final Four basketball game, <laughs> uh, I remember the media talking about it and saying you know, how telling that was, the excitement that Couch uh, elected to stay at home and, and play for the yeah. Cats. Um, and Tim though, was a hell of a basketball player, too. Yeah, yeah. Even though he was closer, the, the town he grew up in is closer to Knoxville uh, right. than, than Lexington. But uh, And you've driven that many times. Yes. Up, through, up 75 through Eastern Kentucky. Me, too. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the corridor where you get most places I would drive to the south out of Chicago. That's kind of the corridor I take. There is a Bucky's on the way, by the way, in <laughs> Richmond, Kentucky. That's fantastic. Always uh, a key. But, yeah, always a key. But uh, – I remember that about Tim Couch. I remember, you know, kind of the disappointment of, of his Browns career, but they weren't very good when he was there either. He's probably the best quarterback to play for the worst teams, uh, if you think about it. And, and, and he won it. You know, they won. Those Kentucky teams won, but kind of had a ceiling in the Outback Bowl or whatever. And then the Browns were just, uh, you know, the Browns. And, 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 and I'll add this on. He's a guy that's always – maintained a positive attitude no matter what at least publicly facing you mm-hmm. know i mean he, he still does the browns uh he, he does a browns uh show one day a week so he still's got yeah. loyalty to the franchise that took him and uh loyalty to big blue uh and, and i respect guys like that you know that that uh hey look you know he made the most out of out of what happened maybe it wasn't the super bowl wins or you know maybe he didn't win the high win the heisman uh, but he sure had a hell of a career, and uh, he seems pretty satisfied and happy with that and still loves talking ball. And, and so that that all uh, is a long way of saying he was a great guest, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, no, uh, you, you can thank uh, Mrs. Morgan for that, too, because she actually <laughs> – she was like, aren't you going to have Tim Couch on us? That's actually a great idea. And it was right around the time of the uh, uh, the draft – where where Tim was number one, as you mentioned, I mean, the, 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 nobody was going to win with those Cleveland teams, and no quarterback was going to perform it particularly well. But to, to Tim's credit, we'll have Ryan Leaf on in the next week or two. Uh, in both cases, the pro career didn't work out the way they would have wanted it to, but they don't make excuses about it. They don't they don't uh, dwell on it or you know, look for other things to blame. It It is what it is. And you give it your best shot and you still got to do what most people never get to do, which is play pro football. And I'll say this too about Tim Couch. Tim Couch could have gone anywhere he wanted. It wasn't just Tennessee, anywhere in the country. Oh, yeah. 
uh, to play co- big time college football. And the numbers were obviously outstanding regardless, but he could have won a lot more games had he chosen quote unquote, the easy route, which is to go to a more established college football program, which at the time, uh, you know, there, there were kind of like today, there was a, a, just different in that the, the schools might be different, but there were about a half a dozen programs that you could have gone to and, and you would have won, you would have played for championships. Uh, but he, there was so much pressure to keep him in state and to have him play for his beloved uh, home state university. And he did that. And um, obviously doesn't regret it. It's, you know, but uh, you, you could have gone somewhere else and, you know, probably played in the, did we have the BCS that we were the BCS was what? 98. Yeah. So most of his career. So yeah. yeah. So most of his career was, pre bcs one year bcs but he could have been playing in big time bowl games is what i'm trying to say so anyway thanks again to tim and imagine you know tennessee and this is nothing against t martin and the years he had there but uh imagine those tennessee teams and t martin quarterbacked if if they had had tim couch tim couch throwing 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 to all those kent and nash Uh, and wow. and having all those NFL running backs behind them, whether it was Jamal Lewis or Travis Stevens, or, I mean, yeah, that would have been ridiculous. Um, uh, first round draft pick, offensive lineman, yeah, I'd, I'd say Tim would have fit pretty well in a Tennessee offense during those great Fulber teams, uh, for sure. Uh, and and how he's not in the College Football Hall of Fame, I I I honestly thought like that was the first time they brought his name up. I don't know how many years you have to wait or what the process is. It's all relatively new. How you don't have Tim Couch in the and and look at some of the names on there. There there is name. I'm not going to get into all this because I don't want to uh, down anybody else. Uh, the, you know, congratulations to the guys who are in there, quarterback. But there's some names in there that were not quite the quarterback of Tim Couch that have gotten inducted. Uh, their, their name's already in there. Their, their plaque's already in there. But for some reason, Tim Couch isn't. That, that doesn't add up. Um, the NFL draft. I've, I've mentioned this before. Two things. Number one, I have a problem. I, I'm convinced I need to watch every pick of the draft. It's not always live. I DVR it. And if I don't catch every pick live, I still watch every pick. And I did that again. How many is that? You know, seven rounds times 30 something would include the compensatory picks. And, you know, you're well over 200, 250 players. And I watch every name. And part of the joy for me is, and I always say this um, for people, friends included, that like to make fun of my weird obsession with the NFL draft, particularly those that are not big NFL fans, is that even if you're not an NFL fan, we all like to play the role of, well, you've done more than play the role, JC. You've actually evaluated high school players at times. That was part of your job. How many stars do I put by this kid's name? And I'm sure there's a level of pride that goes with that. You want to be right. You want to say 10 years ago, JC Sherbert told everybody that this guy was a five-star player and he played like a five-star player. I like to look at the players that I saw and in many cases, players that I got to to broadcast and and I have an idea in my mind oh yeah this guy is going to be big time this guy is going to be or or maybe somebody else told me watch Mike watch out for that outside linebacker that you uh you had in a sunbelt game that nobody's talking about he's going to be in the NFL and so 
I love that facet of it. It is a it is a review of the college football season or seasons that we just witnessed. It is a review of the talent that just went and played college football. And I'm I'm very curious to see how the people at the next level look at those guys. So um, I realize the NFL draft is not for everybody. I'll tell you this much. If you're a college football fan, and if you're listening to us, you are. The amount of players that your program sends to the NFL means a lot. It is the ultimate recruiting tool. You can't go into a college football locker room or football facility without seeing pictures and names and plaques of every guy that went on to play in the pros. Because those kids that go to your college football program, the overwhelming majority, that is their goal, to play pro ball. So they want to see predecessors that went to that particular school and prove that it can be done. And you can say, well, so-and-so went here, the same that he played for the same team. He went in the same locker room. He lived in the same dorm as I am now. He made it in the NFL. By golly, I'm going to make it in the NFL. So it does matter. Um, The usual suspects coming up with the most draft picks. The SEC, again, it's like 16, 17 years in a row. Most players drafted, right? Uh, Within the SEC, most SEC players drafted. Guess who's tied for first, JC? Oh, Alabama, Georgia would be my guess. There you go. Alabama and Georgia, 10 and 10. Uh, Then it's LSU and Florida with six. Tennessee, South Carolina, Auburn. After that with five. Want to take a guess who's dead last with zero? Would that be Vanderbilt? That would be Vanderbilt. <laughs> mm. uh, Vandy, no Jay Cutler uh, in this draft. Usually Vandy actually does have like a player on defense that, that gets selected, yeah. but not this year. Missouri with one, Mississippi State with two, uh, Kentucky with just three players. You know, once Will Levis went, they had a DB go in the seventh round, and they had – um, position. They had one other guy go late in the draft. Point is, it just was not a very talented team. Uh, it wasn't all Will Levis's fault that they lost some games. But Texas A&M, just three guys. Mm. Now, a lot of their best players are young, as we know, from that highly touted recruiting class, the ones that haven't hit the portal. But there, there's a few surprising names in the second half. But at the top, no, it's Alabama, it's Georgia, and it's not just the number. Most of those picks are high, high draft picks. That being said, I always have a list that uh, that I look at. Uh, you know, I feel like, okay, I, I have a good idea of what player is going to go in what round. And, yeah, I read the projections and everything else. But after every draft, I have my say what list. Like, how did that guy either not get drafted or go as late as he did? It's, it's a literal say what and I had a few of those, JC. Um, now, I know in many cases, I know why. In many cases, I don't really know why. Uh, Kayshawn Booty of LSU, who two years ago set an SEC record with 308 yards receiving against Ole Miss and looked like a just another in the long line of LSU first-round draft pick wideouts, goes in round number six. A lot of that has to do with attitude, with kind of quitting – Kind of, you know, do you really love football? Do you, where, where are you? That is a, that is a indictment on Kayshawn, not between the lines, but outside the lines. 
but he might, if he gets it all together, the light bulb comes back on, he could be an outstanding player, yet another great LSU wide receiver. Um, A.T. Perry, if you watched Wake Forest and Sam Hartman the last couple of years, won a ton of games. That was your top receiver by far, six, four and a half guy. He went in the sixth round. Um, so often when you take a deeper dive on those guys that go later than you think, it's 40 time. It's either 40 time or uh, something in a workout that just wasn't good because the productivity was certainly there. Kali Ringo, fourth round. Fourth, fourth round. Stud defensive back for Georgia. Uh, Hendon Hooker, third round. I thought Hendon Hooker could go late first. I know he's 25. I know he's coming off an ACL. Guys recover from ACLs now in six to eight months. It's not like it used to be. It's not a death sentence for your your uh, your future. Uh, Jalen Hyatt, Cedric Tillman, Josh Downs, three stud wide receivers, all went in the third round. They easily could have gone higher than that. Mm. Michael Mayer, the tight end, Notre Dame. Every time I watched Notre Dame, this guy was just eating up secondaries. Linebackers couldn't cover him. Defensive backs couldn't tackle him. Catches everything in sight. Big body. He went in the in the <clears throat> excuse me. He went in the second round, number thirty five overall. A lot of people thought he was a lock to be mid to late first round. Nolan Smith of Georgia, thirty overall. I'm not sure what I'm missing there. Maybe a little undersized. Uh, yeah. Deuce Vaughn. Is that it? Undersized. No, keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, fit too. He's we'll a, revisit all these. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Deuce Vaughn. Now he definitely is undersized. He's like five five, but I think of Dave Meggett. Um, I think of you know some great little running back Joe Morris. If you want to go back that far, he went in the sixth round. I, I realize he ran a four six in the combine, but he just he gets lost behind the line. He makes plays. He can return kicks for a six round pick. I think that's a steal. And yes, Max Duggan. A lot of people voted number one for their Heisman Trophy. He went in the seventh round. Um, I did. I. I mean, I wasn't going to look at him as a first, second round pick, but I thought he'd go higher than the seventh. So those are just some of those say what picks, JC. That I, I, as I'm watching, I'm like, wow, how did how did he not go higher? Yeah, I, I think there's two things. I think some in the case of Nolan Smith, he's always been kind of undersized and. You know, you mentioned me doing it for a living, and, you know, we got a lot of benefit out of the NFL draft. And one thing that, you know, Bobby Burton, who uh, sort of taught me the business on the ranking side and the, you know, the recruiting side and all that, uh, way back in the day, he he ranked Peyton Manning number one overall before, you know, anybody had any resources. I mean, he used to get in his car and drive all over the country to pick up VHS tape and things. I mean, old school, right? So you know what he's talking about. Use the NFL draft as a, as a termination of your rankings. In other words, you cannot project like a guy out of high school to be an all pro. That That's not really what you, you're looking for. You, you're, you're looking to, if you're looking for a long-term projection, project to the draft, you know, because that's, uh, that's going to tell you, you know, a, a lot about, how good these guys were, you know, on, on the surface. Um, so that's A. You know, B, uh, you know, we used the NFL, like, draft data. In other words, how many guards go in the first round? Not very many. <laughs> how many centers go in the first round? Not very many. Okay, running backs now rarely go in the top ten. This year, of course, you did have B. John Robinson. 
So maybe we shouldn't rank running backs uh, in the top five unless they're special. You know, positional value is huge. Well, who goes first, your top tackle or, or your top wide receiver? Well, depends on how good the wide receiver is. But most of the time, a rule of thumb is your offensive tackles, your left tackles, your quarterbacks, and your corners, uh, those are your rare guys that everybody needs. So if they're elite and you got a bushel of elite players and everything's even, you're doing an apples to oranges comparison when you're ranking, you're going to rank the corner over the running back. It's just, it's just how, you know, it's just a nice guide. So, so I'll say that uh, I also would have not ranked Nolan Smith as high as a lot of people had him. They had him. A lot of people had him number one. I do think he was the best player overall uh, in high school football that year, but projection wise, you know, I thought, well, he's built more like a linebacker. Uh, and a lot of times in recruiting rankings, uh, people have gotten burnt by the likes of Xavier Thomas, who's still at Clemson, who's a good player and has had some, you know, off the field challenges, but he's a six, one D end. Um, you know, Byron Cowart was ranked number one in the country, went to Auburn, did nothing, you know, Carl Lawson, I think, got drafted. Another 6-1 DN that w- went to Auburn that was ranked in the top three. Uh, he did a little bit better. I think he got drafted. But was he elite? No. And, and those guys at end, if you if you don't hit the specs at end, then there's one of two things that has to happen. Either you need to be just a complete holy terror and, and overcome like Von Miller, uh, or you need to be in a system like, like the Steelers like a 50 defense three, four, where you can stand up and rush the passer and, and things like that. Uh, and so that's, that's what, you know, that's a long way of saying was not surprised. Nolan Smith went at 30th, um, you know, Deuce Vaughn, I, I think somebody somewhere could have drafted him a little higher. I agree with you there. There's been, there's a long history of guys like that. Uh, and then with Max uh, from TCU, all I can say is the NFL overthinks quarterbacks uh, time and time and time again. Uh, if I'm Max, I, I, I wouldn't sweat it, man, <laughs> because there is a, a a bunch, a long list of first round quarterbacks that have been busts, and a long list of later round or free agent quarterbacks that have gone on to star in the league. So, uh, I wouldn't, I would, I think that position is completely overthought. Uh, I yeah. think that they, they, they. Uh, and that's why I was glad to see the Panthers take Bryce Young. You know, uh, I was on the record as saying I would have taken McCord because he lit up Georgia. Uh, and, and I think that says something. But, you know, Bryce Young going number one, that that's good. That's good. But, you know, for every first-round pick, every, every Patrick Mahomes that works out, you know, there's a Blake Bortles or a Mitch Trubisky or, or whoever, that the, these folks on the other level – with infinitely more resources than the guys that do the recruiting rankings, I may add, uh, fall in love with. And, 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 and you're just like, well, you're kind of wondering how this guy's going to play, you know, how, how, what's, what's going to happen with him. And, and it's a product of overthinking. So uh, I think, I think they do that at other positions too, uh, which is why maybe you see a, a, a Max Dugan or a, a Deuce Vaughn uh, down there a little lower uh, than maybe we expected. And of course, there's always players that go undrafted that wind up making a roster. I mean, Eli Ricks, do you remember how highly yeah. thought of Eli Ricks was? You know, he <clears throat> he transfers from LSU to Alabama. And there's some people wondering, does the kid even like football? Um, he just, there was something there where the light was not shining brightly anymore, but mm-hmm. he gets picked up by the Eagles. He might have a great pro career. 
you know, but he, for whatever reason, seven rounds, 200 and some odd picks, and he goes completely undrafted. See, Riggs is a good player. The red, and this is going to be interesting because the NFL, you know, um, and I'll, I'll use like a recruiting rankings comparison again. Like, we don't, we got to the point in our industry, Mike, where we were like, well, we're not going to hold you know, off the field rumors against guys and, and things like that. Unless he's, unless there's a stated legal issue that could throw you off track in terms of your development, you know, you're not listen to that. NFL considers everything. And mm-hmm. uh, if I'm a football guy, a big red flag for me would be, okay, this kid came all the way from California, uh, went to LSU and then goes up the road to play for their rival and really has not accomplished much of anything, you know, during his his career. Uh, he's good, but is he great? And is he worth a draft pick? Where we got this other guy that stayed three years at this school and developed and balled out, uh, you know, that, that didn't, you know, wasn't out there chasing uh, the limelight and glory. You know, I, I think the well, there's something to be said for that. You know, with uh, with regards to some of the decisions these guys make, because. Uh, it, it is, I mean, like, okay, I have three years of bad rankings. I'm probably getting fired because fans are going to start tuning me out. Right. These guys have one year of bad drafting and they're going to get fired. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and the franchise is going to waste millions of dollars. There's money, money, money at stake. So you have to consider a lot of things when you're drafting and, uh, certainly, uh, you know, Ricks was one of those and th- that I sort of agreed with. I don't think they overthought it. I think there's just too many red flags for them to waste a precious draft pick on uh, on that guy when you can – if you do like him, you can always get him in for free agency and see if he can make the team. Well, that's the thing, too. When, when, you're, when you're drafting late rounds, you can look at it one of two ways. It's the guy that uh, – the book on him is bad character, so you can, you can get a value pick. You can get a guy in the sixth round that has first-round talent but clearly there's red flags all over the place. And you think, well, if he doesn't work out, I've got nothing invested in him. He's a six-round draft pick, so nothing nothing ventured, nothing gained. Or there's the other way of looking at it. I, I'm drafting you in the in the sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh round for a reason. You're not good enough to be a top 100 pick, and therefore I'm not going to waste time on a guy that has any blemish at all on their resume. I'm not fooling around with that nonsense because guys that are taken in those rounds, those are locker room guys. Those are special teams guys. Those are backups that even if they're not playing, they help formulate the culture in that locker room of that team. And that's still a thing, even at the NFL level. It's not just a rah-rah college thing. One of the reasons why Bill Belichick and the Patriots were so good for so long is that they always had that. And they always had guys in that locker room who weren't stars, but knew their role and and did what they were supposed to do, and it it just fostered a great culture. So a lot of teams they don't want to mess around with that garbage. You know, you're, the big the big the other big story other than Will Levis dropping or one of the other big stories was Jalen Carter. I said it before on this podcast. I had Georgia against uh, Mississippi State. Mississippi State could not block Jalen Carter all night long. They blocked everybody else, and it's not as if Georgia didn't have other talented players on that team. Those guys got blocked. Jalen Carter couldn't be blocked. And if you watch Jalen Carter on tape, Jalen Carter was the most unblockable, dominating defensive force in college football. 
by all accounts, he could have been the number one overall pick if you weren't desperate for a quarterback. He falls to where he falls because character. And so if he wasn't a mega, mega, mega talent, you don't even, you might just not even worry about him. You might not even have him on your board. But when you're that talented, you're going in the first round, regardless of the blemishes. And here are the Eagles. And the Eagles, you know, to use your saying, JC, they don't overthink anything. They just continue to get some of the big, most big time players from the most big time programs. Uh, and they, and they draft them. And while everybody else is like playing chess, much to their own dismay, they're just playing checkers. Like this guy was really good for a really good college team for three, four years. That's our high pick. And they all seem to be working out pretty well in Philly. So they are a classic case of you don't have to overthink it. Uh, sometimes the answer is right there on the piece of paper or on the film in front of you. Um, anyway, I thought it was interesting. We're going to be talking years from now about all these quarterbacks, and and so much is going to be the Bryce Young situation. If Bryce Young does what I think he'll do, and I stress the word think because I don't pretend to know, uh, I, I think the, the most sure picks are next year with Caleb Williams and Drake May. Um, those, to me, like you could take a lot of the guesswork out of it. They're going to be high picks, and I think they're going to be very successful. I don't know if Bryce Young is going to be very successful. I don't know if C.J. Stroud is going to be very successful. This is where it becomes hard to judge because, first off, they're surrounded by much more talent than almost everybody on their schedule, right? I mean, Stroud is – taking his pick on every snap, do I throw to this first-round wide receiver or that first-round wide receiver? Do I go to the left side of the line when I'm flushed out of the pocket in front of high draft pick left tackle, or do I go to the right side behind high draft pick right guard? It, you know, like that's, That is clearly an advantage to have that. And by the way, Harrison is the best wide receiver. Forget about Njigba. And the, wait till you see Marvin Harrison Jr. next year ball out. Uh, he might be the best overall prospect in the draft. He just won't go one because there's always going to be a team that takes a quarterback one. Um, so that's hard to judge. And then with Young and the size, if Bryce Young is injured and has struggles with making certain throws, it might be the last time we ever see a quarterback his size go that high in the draft. Mm -hmm. If he is an absolute star, then this will become even more normal than it already is. Kyler Murray, to me, has been a disappointment. But it's not because he's 5'10". I don't think Kyler Murray loves football, honestly. I think he loves baseball more than he loves football. Um, and some scouts saw it that way when he was coming out. But you had a coach who was no longer a head coach in college, uh, excuse me, in the NFL, you had a coach in Cliff Kingsbury that said, nope, nope, I'm taking him, and he was going to ride or die with him. Well, he's now unemployed from NFL circles. Um, Russell Wilson, I don't know what happened to him. He turned into a pumpkin in Denver. But for a while there, Russell Wilson was a really good quarterback at 5'10". But he's thicker. Oh, both those guys are thick. Like they, mm -hmm. they are just big, thick, stocky, shorter guys. Bryce is shorter, and he's frail. So I don't, I don't know, but he doesn't take many shots. And if you watched him at Alabama, JC, how many times did he actually get a pass deflected at the line of scrimmage? I didn't see it much. No, it looked like no. he was able to, you know, 
That didn't seem like an issue to me at all for him. He's, he, in fact, I thought if you want to go look at something to kind of speak to that, go look at the um, go look at the uh, Alabama championship game they lost to Georgia. Okay, second half, Georgia figured out, hey, their receivers are hurt. Let's just come after him and and and, and let's see what he can do. Look at the passes he threw down the field that were dropped, that were right in the mm-hmm. bread basket of, of the receiver that probably maybe one other quarterback, two other quarterbacks in the country could have made. Um, and, and you know what Georgia's defensive line measured at? You mentioned Jalen Carter. He's 6'5". You know, uh, I know right. Nolan Smith was a little smaller, but the rest of those dudes were 6'4", 6'3", 6'5". Uh, right in his face, they all got their hands up. He threw it right through them. So uh, I, I'm with you. I don't. I don't you know, based on what I've seen in college, I'm not sure that height is going to be an issue. Now, the pros sometimes make fools out of all of us in that game. And uh, so maybe that's the case, but uh, I, I'm with you. I, I don't think height height was an issue because just kind of the way he sees down the field. Yeah, yeah. And and look, is he? he's probably going to play at around 190. Um, I know what he weighed in. You know, you, you and I could both just load up on – either protein shakes or uh, high-calorie beer before our weigh-in, put on 10 pounds in a hurry. But what you're going to play at, he's going to play at around 190. He's not going to play at 200 and change. If Again, his build would just would indicate that's not going to be the case. But I don't – maybe I'm wrong. And the, We've seen what we talked about with, with Tim Couch. We've seen the biggest of the big quarterbacks battle injuries because they take too many shots. I don't know if Bryce Young is going to take that many shots. Um the, the Panthers will – that'll be their job, obviously, is to do a better job protecting them. Uh, the Panthers have been a mess now for a while. Maybe they finally uh, get it together and uh, are, are able to build around this guy who clearly is going to be the key to that franchise getting back to relevancy. Um, one other uh, story news note that came out, JC, the dates already thinking ahead to 2024 – the dates of, of the way that's going to work out. First round, Friday, December the 20th, will be one game. Saturday, December the 21st, will be three games. So go ahead and uh, make your plans now if you think your team is going to go to the uh, college football 12-team playoff. The quarterfinals, three games on New Year's Eve, Tuesday, December the 31st, and then uh, Wednesday, January 1, will be one game. And then the semis will be on a Thursday or Friday, January 9th, or 10th, and the championship game will be the latest it's ever been Monday, January the 20th. Your thoughts? Pin day turnarounds for all this. Uh, all right, so, okay. You sound all frustrated right. already. You're going to pile this in before Christmas, okay? You need to do something about the signing day. I mean, I, 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 or the portal opening then or something like that, Mike, because that's too much. I mean, I, I don't know, you know. Too much for the coaches, you mean? The coaching staff. I mean, look, you know, you you can say, oh, well, they can double their off-the-field staff to handle it because those coaches are unlimited. Well, they're not really unlimited. First and foremost, the NCAA does have guidances on analysts and whoever. That's A. B, not everybody's going to be able to afford that, okay? You know, number two, 
uh, uh, you know, I, that would be like having the draft during the playoffs for the NFL. That's not going to happen. Um, you know, they really need to do something about that. Uh, you know, maybe move it back to the original time, maybe have one before school starts. I mean, I, I don't know what they need to do, but they got to do something because uh, every coach I talked to last year felt like absolutely drained because you had, you know, bowl practices. You had, uh, you know, with the portal rules now, you, you got to go re-recruit all of your own guys and make sure they're all good. You know, then you're trying to sign a class out of high school at the same time. Uh, and all your, because 95% of the guys now sign early, you know, and, and so there's something has to give there. I don't think it's good, good for the sport at all. Uh, or fair to sit there and, and, and pile all this on coaches right then, you know, because these guys that are in the playoffs, it, it looks like they're only going to have, you know, it looks like they'll have about 10 days between each opponent to prepare. Um, that's more than you get during the season, but that's still not a lot of time. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, if I'm the NCAA, I'm, I'm kind of looking at what, what can I do to alleviate some of the busyness of December uh, after what happened last December and while I'm piling on uh, playoff games and, and things like that. I don't mind the, the season lasting till June 20th. Uh, NFL season lasts till the first weekend of February now anyway, maybe the second. You mean January, January 20th. No, I'm sorry, January 20th. Uh, NFL, like I said, goes into February anyway. Uh, I think that's fine. Um, I don't really have a big uh, – a big issue with it bleeding into a second semester because other sports have go across two semesters and things like that. And they, they're, they're mm-hmm. okay. So uh, I think it's good, but uh, man, how fascinating um, this, this is. So I'm a, all right. So what are they? So I, I didn't read the whole, you kind of read that out to me. Like, so what are they going to do? So the bowls will be quarter quarterfinals and semis. They said, so you're going to wait to play like the Fiesta Bowl and Rose Bowl every year on, t- until January 9th and 10th, or will you have a Rose Bowl and Fiesta Bowl and these will just be the semis, or how are they going to do that? Well, the the only thing it says in terms of the um, the bowl designation, which which as we know is going to rotate, uh, the the Cotton Bowl has already been moved to December 30th to avoid any conflict. Right, because you've got games on New Year's Eve again, um, and then it doesn't really it doesn't really have the designation, and I, and I'm still figuring out are we are we a lock for home site games? That's the model that-, that they said. Like the 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 top four get a bye to the bowls, and then the top. For remaining, get uh, home games. Yeah, get a home game. But like I, I guess I want to see that in writing. I this doesn't. This particular article really just gives you the dates. It doesn't give you a whole lot of other specifics. This is from uh, David Cobb of CVS Sports, and it just gives. I mean, this this is the one thing that it seems to be concrete. Everything else to me almost seems still to be a moving target. But we have the dates but we're not entirely sure where some of those games are going to be, what bowl assignment is going to be other than we know the cotton bowl is moving a date. That's all I got. Still yeah, a little bit cloudy. Still, still, yeah. still, 
still a little bit cloudy. Well, you know, again, everything with the NCAA moves at a glacial pace. The extra games, by the way, are expected to uh, generate $450 million in television revenue for the CFP and its members. Four fifth, that's nearly a half a billion dollars just on the extra games. Just on the extra games. Now, you know, to go back to what our guest a few weeks ago, Tim Brando, said, he believes this is just a harbinger of even more expansion. <clears throat> I hope that's not the case. I think I think they have a good thing here. Like I was amazed at how they they basically got it right, in my opinion. I, I think that they they did this as well as it can be done. But who knows? When you start talking about four hundred and fifty million, that might make make it tempting to have yet another round. We'll see. We'll see. I got some more more info here, by the way. Okay. So they they have not reached an agreement with the Bulls yet, i.e., the Rose Bowl is still na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-
to have the money and the time off to yeah. be able to do this. And that's, whereas you're just going to one bowl on one day and that's for all the marbles. That's fine. Uh, that's an expense, but, but the, you know, three rounds plus a, plus a conference title game, that's going to be expensive. No, your so, your yeah, average you know, person can't afford it, nor can they find yeah. the time. And once you're retired, who can find yeah. the time to do all that? But again, your and, average and person is going to watch. Yeah, right. Games. That's right. That's right. I mean, your, your average person is going to watch on TV. And that's, and that goes back to kind of where we are anyway. Mm. Um, you know, last year was a little bit of a bounce back year in attendance, but for the most part, a lot of people have already made their, their choice. Uh, and of course, if you've noticed over the last two plus years, everything costs more money with less take home pay. For those that just did their tax returns, you might've noticed you're not getting as much money back or you're paying more. Um, welcome to the new normal. Everything costs more and you get less. So if you add all that up, a lot of college football fans are going to say, yeah, I'm going to sit this one out and just watch it on my high def because I can't afford to do multiple postseason trips. Um, so that'll be an interesting thing. One last thing before we uh, get ready to sign off, JC, and are we, I, I get confused with all this now <laughs> and I've heard coaches tell me, and I still get confused. Are we done? Are we out of the portal period? That that just expired, right? Mm-hmm. As we, we are, record yeah. this today, as we record it May first, you can no longer enter the transfer portal. Now that said, <laughs> uh, there's a difference between being in the portal and it being known in public. Uh, so don't 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 think there may not be some more announcements. Hey, I'm getting in the portal, right? But uh, as far as, you know, if a kid today has not gotten in the portal yet, they're not going to get in the portal because they can't. Um, but people get confused because they think, oh, it's the like it's a portal period where you can't sign guys out of the portal anymore. And that's not you can always sign guys. Um, they didn't limit that, nor should they, because there's so many guys that make big mistakes <laughs> and get in the portal or they have no takers. And, you know, you need to give those guys a chance way down the road, no matter what happens to maybe find a taker. But uh, yeah. So right now, uh, as of today, uh, whatever is in the portals in the portal, nobody else is in the portal, but uh, you know, the media and the public, you know, I, I think does a good job of reporting who's in, but sometimes that information can be quiet uh, and kept quiet. And it's not even necessarily, that your name appears in the big database. It's, it's when you talk to your compliance director at your school. Uh, and then it takes, it takes some time to process. So, you know, a kid to, you know, yesterday could have gone to, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, I want to be put in the portal and he's just not showing up because of paperwork or a lag at his institution. So it's over, but it's not. How about that? Okay. I feel like I'm more confused than I <laughs> was before oh I asked that question, but it's, it's it, it never, is, man. It's confusing. I mean, it really it, is. It's man. completely confusing, but it, it, things are going to calm down, I guess, if nothing else, right? We're not going to continually hear more and more guys jumping ship. Like those Colorado guys for Dion, for example, they, they just beat the deadline and they're gone, but we're not going to have, for example, next week when we do this, we're not going to talk about 15 premier players that just went in the portal. No. Because most of those guys that if they wanted to do that, they've already done it. Yeah. Right? 
Absolutely. That's okay. That's exactly what the deal is. That's okay. Um, as we sign off, I want to thank uh, some of our great sponsors, including Blue Delta Jeans, BlueDeltaJeans.com for the very best in custom jeans. Now they've got all kinds of accessories too, from belts to hats to uh, shirts, you name it. Um, Blue Delta Jeans, the, the brand just continues to grow. And so too does the product line and the choices that you have. Check out the website, BlueDeltaJeans.com. Also, Look Cinemas, uh, Look Dining Cinemas nationwide from uh, Atlanta, Georgia to uh, Glendale, Arizona. I say Atlanta, Brookhaven is really specifically the spot. Um, to South Arlington, Texas, to they just opened one up in uh, New York City. Uh, in New fact, York, our winner of, uh, yes, West 57th Street, our winner of uh, the ticket giveaway last week was Jason Lent of Tampa, Florida. Jason, you've got a pair of tickets going. You can go ahead and enjoy. Uh, I would just watch Air, enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, you can pick whatever movie you want to see, whether it's a franchise movie with a bunch of people with capes and costumes uh, fighting whatever silly, ridiculous little uh-huh. uh, uh, war that they're doing, or actually movies about real life that uh, your the rest of us adults can enjoy. You can go ahead and uh, check that out at one of your local <clears throat> look cinemas. And first person to tweet me at Morgan on air, I will send you a pair of tickets for the show in uh, your neck of the woods. That's look cinemas. You can check out uh, where the closest one is to you. Look cinemas.com. Thanks again to Tim couch. Thanks again to uh, all of you, the thousands that are tuning in each and every week to JC and Morgan. Thanks to you, JC. Once again, and uh, we'll be back a week from now. We'll have Ryan Leaf either next week or the week after that, and we'll continue to uh, keep going. It's the off season, but we are not off, as they like oh, to yeah. say. All right, for JC, this is Mike saying so long. See you next time, JC and Morgan. <laughs>